Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I have Mark Major. Mark trained and practiced as an architect prior to focusing on the unique relationship between light and architecture. He was honored as a Royal Designer for Industry in 2012 and served as Master of the Faculty of Royal Designers for Industry from 2020 until 2022. Mark formed Spears Major with Keith Bradshaw, which grew out of Spears and Major Associates. Spears Major are recognized as being one of the, lar- the world's largest lighting design practices, using light and darkness to enhance the experience of the visual environment. He has led a wide range of award-winning lighting projects, including the Millennium, Millennium Dome, 30 St. Mary Acts, Beijing International Airport, the refurbishment of Royal Festival Hall, and the relighting of the interior of St. Paul's Cathedral. I've never heard of any of those places. <laughs> Recent award-winning projects include Gas Holders London, the Macallan Distillery, and Norwich Cathedral. He's a specialist in the field of urban lighting and was named as a key city advisor by Monocle in 2013. Mark acted as the lighting design advisor to the Olympic Delivery Authority for London in 2012 and was appointed to the Mayor of London's Special Assistance Team for the Outer London Fund in the same year. With an active interest in architectural and lighting education, Mark has lectured extensively in the UK, Europe, Scandinavia, US, and Australia. He was the co-creator of an educational project, Made of Light, the Art of Light and Architecture. Mark is also a corporate member of the Royal Institute of British Architects, a fellow of the International Association of Lighting Designers, and a fellow of the Royal Corporation of Architects in Scotland. Mark Major, it is my honor to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. Delighted to be here. Before we, you know, I always love to talk to lighting practitioners the most. Um, particularly uh, people that are, are, are sort of steeped in the idea of lighting and darkness as both having value. Tell me a little bit about when and how darkness became a part of your lighting design practice and why it is valuable to your customers. Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. I think for me personally, and I guess it plays out through the work of the practice over time, um, it's always been with me. I, I really, if, I, if I'm honest, always wanted to be a painter, um, but I ended up an architect. And then mm-hmm. to me, actually going into lighting design was a little bit like sort of, I'm not saying getting back to painting, but it sort of mm. creatively, it sort of offered mm-hmm. different opportunities. And I've always understood, you know, as a painter that, you know, we're sort of subtracting light as we add paint to a white canvas. Mm-hmm. And when I got into lighting, I always understood it was sort of almost like the inverse, if you see what I mean, light being an additive medium. So to me, it seemed very logical that darkness was as the sort of counterpart to light was something that, you know, you you couldn't talk about light without talking about its counterpart. Um, And actually, it's sort of, it's not just about darkness. It's also about shadow and shadow play and degrees of darkness and degrees of light, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's, it's sort of, it, it, it's, it's intrinsic. I, I think sometimes lighting designers or the lighting design community get a bit lazy just talking about the additive as opposed to mm-hmm. the subtractive. I guess for me, that's always been important. 
And uh, I started writing about and talking about the value of darkness quite early on in our practice. Um, and uh, the more I got involved in urban design work and urban lighting, uh, producing master plans and lighting strategies for for cities, um, particularly here in the UK, historic cities such as Cambridge and Durham. These are cities that I found to be very dark. And when I talked to people, I discovered that even though, of course, they were worried about safety, security, all the stuff that we're all worried about, you know, when mm -hmm. we walk through a city. Of course. I also got a lot of feedback at the time, particularly in, uh, in Cambridge, that actually people valued the darkness of the city. They kind of liked the privacy that it brought, uh, mm. the sort of atmosphere that they mm -hmm. did. You know, they generally felt pretty safe. But the thing they were most worried about was overlighting, that, that we would come in and we would sort of spoil the city by adding too much light. You can sure do that, and it gets really easy with LEDs because of the um, the capacity. I always say like the easiest people talk about energy efficiency. I think the 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 Javon's paradox is that we fall into with light is is often driven by circuit capacity. Like it's not just that um, we save energy, but it's also that you can put so many you know, and I don't you know pretend to know the electrical infrastructure of the UK or Europe but in, here in Canada you can put an awful lot of very bright led lights on one 15 amp circuit and yeah. you know you know so when when they're saying when you say to an electrician say you know I want to light this parking lot up well we can throw a bullhorn on the top of that pole and put three or four led 80 watt led lights to replace that one 400 watt metal halide or hps or whatever was there and so there's this there there is a lot of factors that play into the default setting, which is to overlight everything, which is to blast it with as much as possible, like a prison yard. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of the background to that is that, you know, not surprisingly, it was the lighting industry itself that preached the message, particularly in the early part of its evolution, the beginning of the 20th century. Of course. Uh, uh, that brightest is best. You know, that's mm -hmm. where that message came from. It came from the people that were selling the lights. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, I mean, the Eiffel Tower was built to light the entire city of Paris all night long. Yeah, I mean, you think about the mindset, right? So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, but but I, I grant you that, you know, in a sense, light, artificial light in particular has always had a lot to do symbolically with the sort of idea of progress, the idea of things moving mm -hmm. forward, the future. You know, so I could see symbolically at that time that actually sort of the brighter you can make it, the better people perceived it to be. And, you know, that's coming from the, you know, the, we're coming at the moment from the position of privilege in the developed world of being able to talk about overlighting. You know, the, you know, light poverty is something that exists in other parts of the world sure where actually does. people don't don't have street lighting. And I'm sure mm -hmm. in Ukraine at the moment, where unfortunately they've you know pretty much lost their entire power grid. You know, the, mm -hmm. it's going to be a gr grim winter. No one's going to be worrying about overlighting in Ukraine. You know, in Ukraine, mm -hmm. they're going to be sort of they're not going to have any light at all. So you know, we're talking from we are talking from a position of privilege. Uh, of um, talking about issues such as overlighting and light pollution. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, you know, it's an, it's, a, it's an important topic. You know, I, 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 I think a privilege is one way to look at it. I think another way to look at it is stability. You know, I think yeah. that, you know, we, we, you know we, we were fortunate enough to, to have, live in places where there isn't war, you know, or, or uh, famine or, you know, with stable electricity grids and, and these types of things that largely is taken for granted. But, I, you know, I give you that, that we are, that there is something about this issue which... Um, can seem ridiculous to those that you know lack basic lighting for their for their lives but the perception of lighting as being the um the indicator of uh success or societal advancement is still with us i mean i i just saw the other day on twitter um, I've said this a couple times, listeners. I know we get complaints about me repeating myself from time to time, but what it was was an image of North Korea and South Korea. And it was saying that capitalism is better than communism because look at the light pollution, right? That was the, <laughs> that was the uh, image, right? There's no lights in North Korea and, and you know, South Korea is com a complete fire of art art electric light at night. Absolutely, yeah. And so that perception, I think, is, is still largely with us, that electric light is somehow this undercurrent of uh, success or development or being ahead, and the more the better. Um, and so I think that, that that's where we, where we need to chip away at, that perception, that idea. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's understandable because in a sense, without, um, without electric light, you know, there's an awful lot that we wouldn't be able to do economically or socially. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there, there's, um, I think there's uh, one or two people that have uh, 
uh, spoken about that in the past, you know, historians and people that, uh, that for instance, Rainer, the, the great uh, architectural historian Rainer Bannum wrote a fantastic uh, essay many years ago called uh, Edison, the Missing Pioneer. And it was all about the idea that Edison, you know, we, you know, architects uh, in particular celebrate lots of things like, you know, the development of steel and concrete and lifts mm -hmm. and all sorts of things. Um, but, uh, but rarely does, you know, electric light get a look in in terms of the way it allowed not only buildings to advance, but the society that those buildings supported to advance in terms of means of production, in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, being able to work. Productivity. To to all of that stuff. And that all counts mm -hmm. towards our economy. And, you know, that makes us wealthier as nations. And so, you know, I can, you know, I can see this sort of where, where that sort of positive outlook on electric light can, can come from and why it still exists. I think it's the greatest invention next to indoor plumbing that we also take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. Sanitation is a... Is a, is a yeah, issue. I mean, like, people don't think about it. I think the, the cover of The Economist had a toilet on it a couple of years ago um, yeah. when they were talking about, you know, major, the most impactful innovations of all time, although they failed to mention electric light in the article, if I remember correctly. Um, <sighs> but yeah, I mean, we overlook the, we take the, take it for granted. And I, I suppose that, you know, uh, we've been giving the devil his due, um, with, uh, -huh. uh when talking about this and I, but I think we uniquely find ourselves, um, in a quandary in 2022 and, and moving forward in that, you know, we there is we have to reassess this idea that more light equals more safety, and I think it it needs to start with people like you, Mark, in the architect architectural trade with with that, bring back the beauty, bring back the artistic feel to our cities. Um, not no light, but I think you know the IDA calls it responsible outdoor light at night is a is a is a good yeah. term. Um, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I I couldn't I. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, I mean, we we have practiced and preached for well years now the idea that less. You know, if, if there's ever if there's ever an area of design where less is more, it's it's in lighting design. Mm. You know, I know it's a very sort of hackneyed phrase and it comes out of architecture, but nonetheless, it's very true when it comes down to our discipline. Because you know what, what, what one one of the problems that people don't seem to sort of relate to is that quite often the problems that they experience at night in the cities is, is to do with contrast, mm -hmm. extremes of contrast. And we, you know, we worked in cities where we pointed out that just by lighting, making this street brighter, you've mm -hmm. simply made all the adjacencies darker and more threatening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's about the quality of the lit environment, as you say, mm -hmm. and, and the sort of, and particularly the aesthetic, the aesthetic quality of the lit environment that, that isn't important. It's not just how we see, but it's how we feel. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of our work is as much to do with perception as it is to do with vision. And what we know is that it's, you know, of course, we have to have enough light to see, but the human eye, the healthy human eye is pretty amazing. You know, it can see mm -hmm. it in sort of less than one lux in sort of moonlight. Mm -hmm. You can see in a hundred thousand lux in bright sunlight. So, you mm -hmm. know, as a scale, that's pretty, pretty impressive. I know, you know, our eyes take time to adapt and we have to take that into account, but the healthy human eye or even the relatively healthy human eye can deal in pretty low levels of illumination quite comfortably as long as it's adapted. And uh, so, you know, to me, you know, lux levels are, are relative. Um, mm. You know, I, I think people have a, you know, sort of, will we'll sit down and say, well, we need this much light here. We need this. And I often say, why? <laughs> if this much light is okay here, what, why isn't it okay over there? And we mm -hmm. sort of see cra crazy amounts of light used, you know, in the streets, almost amounts of light that you would have indoors as opposed to outdoors and that that's a, that, that that's that's a huge question um so so for me you know it's about uh, i think our role as lighting designers is to sort of challenge some of the conventions that have mm -hmm. grown up over time and the standards that have been i think dictated um by a mix of different people who perhaps have different agendas interesting i uh, there you know, I often mention prison yards, and yeah. you you talked about the idea of contrast, which I actually wrote down before you said it when you were talking about uh, earlier in the conversation. I wanted to bring up contrast and how contrast is used. I was in an art gallery the other day, and I pointed out the problem with with the with their lighting system was that there was no contrast between the artwork on the wall and the wall. <laughs> you know, like that yeah. you're. You know, there, you need you need to have more light here and less light here, and so I was I was pointing this out to them. But when you think about how a prison yard actually works, or how a police officer say 
when he walks up to you in your car at night and shines a flashlight in your eyes. What he's doing or what that person is doing or that prison is doing is creating a, a, an extreme difference between the two people involved with the light. One person can see the other and the other can't see the other person. And so there's a power dynamic. There's a prison of the panopticon created where they don't know if they're being watched and or who's looking at them or what they have and, and so on. There's a power dynamic created there. And I think when we do this um, on our highways in that, I think even though there may be more measurements on the lux meter or, you know, these other crude measurements we use to, to take to, to design lighting, um, I think we lose the, um, the, that they, the, we're not taking into account that contrast effect where somebody outside the party at your house at night can see everything in your window, but you can't see them watching you in their window. And yeah. so there's like this, there's like this difference between those two effects. And we create that with LEDs, I think much easier than we did with metal halide and HPS. We create those situations where there's an extreme contrast. And we interviewed a fellow um, years ago who talked about the problems with this at crosswalks, that this massive difference in light is actually causing less visual acuity at crosswalks. Yeah. Then it is creating visual acuity. And so how do we get out of this mess, Mark? Like, what is it that we have to do as, a, as lighting designers, distributors, as an industry? What, how do we get out of it? I just think it's a question of constant reevaluation. Reevaluation mm. of this, as again, I come back to the standards that we're re often required to work to and being brave enough or um, strong enough to sort of challenge some of those standards. I mean, we're quite well known um, in in our in, in, in our profession for being innovative, mm. but I think I'd like to think that part of that innovation isn't to do with technology, just with technology. It's also being innovative in terms of the, the way in which we sort of examine the, just the basic premise of what we what we do. And for for, for many years, uh, particularly when we're working on urban lighting schemes, we've gone we've gone in and had some pretty tough conversations with uh, local government. About saying, you know, well, why don't we try and actually reduce reduce the amount of light across your city by ten percent, twenty percent? We're not, you know, we're not necessarily challenging the unit, uniformity values. But what we are saying is, you know, given that the quality of light is so much better, you know, a lot of these standards were set up when HPS or even, mm -hmm. you know, low pressure sodium, low was pressure around. sodium, sure, and, and and they and they they've barely changed, and yet we've got broader spectrum light tons of light in the blue end of the spectrum, you know, mm -hmm. totally new light sources that enable people to, with amazing, I mean, almost from, from, from you know, I, I, I guess I'm showing my age here, but almost too much good, you know, too good a color rendering. You can mm -hmm. almost see a bit too well. <laughs> exactly. <It might laughs> I, be I true. still have a romantic, you know, have a sort of slightly romantic notion of, uh, you know, of low pressure sodium sort of having this sort of interesting edgy sort of nighttime quality but that's a whole different topic um but but nonetheless you know we can see so well in led light mm -hmm. you know, so, so incredibly well why are the standards these days in terms of the amount of light you deliver pretty similar now to what they were 25 30 years ago it's hardly changed at all yeah, that's true you know? and you know it's interesting i, I think I, my my small town where i live actually is lit with hps lights that are kind of torch lights and i I, you know, I'm involved in trying to tell them not to begun switching them to uh, 5,000 Kelvin LEDs and it just looks awful. Like the fixture oh, looks awful yeah. and yeah, the, yeah. you're losing the, the feeling of the street and that's a solvable problem. Um, but before we, we, we get to, an, I have another question for you that, that I want to ask, but before we get there, uh, I think this movement has missed on the regulation piece, which is what you were kind of referring to or standards. Yeah. Um, if you've ever been involved in a serious lawsuit involving roadway and lighting and all this sort of stuff, you find that the, the first thing the lawyers pull out is those regulations and standards. Precisely. And, and if somebody has, uh, if the lighting has failed to meet the standard or somebody decided to go dark sky at this, you know, yep. highway on ramp or whatever, you're going to see massive lawsuits, which are going to backfire against this movement big time. So I think we need to address that regulation piece and, you know, as individual jurisdictions, because I know it's it's um, it's an Ontario law. OK, so we have this balkanization of this. So it's just my province has the has the, you know, their traffic and roadway standards for crosswalks and lighting and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Quebec has a different standard and maybe Minnesota and, and England and, and different yeah. parts of Europe. But I think we need to really start putting together a regulatory advisory council or something for people to to make the to guide people in how to make these changes correctly because we do need lighting right but we also 
want to make sure that we're being responsible with, with from like, like responsible outdoor light at night. I like that kind of acronym roll on. How do have we, are we putting the cart in front of the horse? Should we go back and, and start addressing these regulations and contacting governments? And Well, yes, I, I unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because one of the things I liked about lighting design when I first came into it you know, over 30 years ago was unlike architecture, which I was studying in, it seemed to have sort of, it seemed to you know have less rules. It was less rule bound. And I, <laughs> yeah, it's I'm not sure. saying I'm a sort of, you know, I'm, I'm a maverick and, you know, a great rule breaker, you know, but uh, um, but I, I like the fact that in a sense it had a sort of creative freedom. If you see mm-hmm. what I mean, there weren't a lot of, you know, um, predetermined tenants against which you design. And then certainly in the early days of lighting, you know, we really didn't, you know, I probably shouldn't confess this on uh, on, on a show, but, uh, you know, we, we really <laughs> didn't sort of get driven by lighting standards at all. We just we just kind of did what we felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite often that sort of people liked what we did and, you know, felt that that was correct. Um, so, um, you know, it wasn't a question of going around with light meters measuring everything. It was just, you know, it, it just sort of worked and based on sort of a combination of intuition and experience. And I think actually, in, in certainly in our practice and in, UK practice, I've seen actually a greater adherence and concern to be sort of compliant with, you know, numbers the whole mm. time. Um, you know, it's even impacted us, as, as I say, in our practice, despite our heritage and not coming from that, 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 that base, coming from a more artistic and creative base. Um, and I think that, as you, uh, you know, as you rightly say, that is to do with a sort of fear of risk that has come into society. Mm. Um, which is just getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Somebody always wants a a number to judge somebody by. Mm -hmm. So what happens in lighting is it all gets converted into sort of measurements Mm -hmm. (laughs) of light. Um, I would say it degenerates to that. It degenerates. Yeah, degenerates. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I I love, I I often have this sort of argument about sort of saying, um, uh, when I'm talking about urban lighting, about talking about something being well lit, and I always qualify that by saying, but I don't mean brightly lit. Mm-hmm. Because quite often, you know, you'll say well lit to a member of the public and they're immediately in their mind, they'll think, oh, you mean brightly lit. It's like, no, I don't mm-hmm. mean that. In fact, I mean mm-hmm. the opposite. <laughs> mm-hmm. I often mean, you know, that there's less light, but maybe there's more light on vertical surfaces. Maybe there's, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's, there's a little bit more texture or color or you can, you know, the, 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 the the environment is more intelligible, more legible. Or it or turns itself think. off at 11 p.m. <laughs> or it turns itself off at 11 p.m., absolutely, yeah. I mean, when I drive home, I, there's a, where I live, there's a lot of sort of people that have moved to the country, so to speak, and they have lit up all the trees on their front lawn. And, and like the 3 o'clock in the morning, the you'll see I go, I go to work really early sometimes you'll see that there's these light up lights on trees and all this kind of stuff and you just think to yourself it's very ostentatious um you know to do that let alone you know i don't know you know the environmental consequences for the bugs and I mean, we can think about all those things but Absolutely. you know i mean well lit means i think it also means well controlled especially for outdoor lighting yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I didn't quite finish answering your question. Oh, on, sorry. You know, this, on, on, no, no, on, on the regulatory thing. So, to, mm. to, to, you know, I, I, I digressed. Um, I do think, unfortunately, as I say, that we, we, we have to sort of begin to um, regulate things more in order to, um, you know, uh, in order to sort of introduce greater respon- a greater sense of responsibility and control for all the reasons that you, you and I, I'm sure, share in terms of sort of reducing light pollution, saving energy, reduction of waste, you know, um, uh, impacts on people and ecology. You know, we, we all know the reasons that we we want to we want to control light better and sort of be more responsible. And I think that, you know, there will have to be regulatory frameworks. But my only concern is who it is that writes those regulations. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to be people that really, really have the experience, enough experience and enough understanding of the subtleties of light and lighting design, particularly in the outdoor environment? Or are they going to be sort of bureaucrats or should I say, you know, lobbied bureaucrats mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. that will make decisions uh, in the wrong direction? Um, because, you know, the lighting industry, like every industry, and I'm pretty sounding overly critical, is not, uh, not, not shy of lobbying. Well, you know, it's, I mean, these words we say, like regulation, like depending on the conversation you're in, you could have someone welcome that and say, we need more regulation and how dare anyone say regulation is bad. And then on the other side, we need to get rid of all regulations. 
you know, like you, it, there's too much of a Manichaean worldview with words, you know, where yeah. they, they trigger people to have a reaction. And, uh, you know, there's so many, you know, of the, these words where it's, it's like the, there's a huge nuanced discussion flowing from them. And when we're talking about critical infrastructure, so we're talking about critical infrastructure, outdoor street lighting, we're talking about, you know, safety, we're talking about environmental responsibility, energy efficiency. These things are very important conversations. And so we need to be able to talk about regulations, how they're written, who writes them, um, who do these people know what the hell they're talking about, you know? And so what I wanted to ask you, and I wrote this note earlier on, and I wanted to get through the regulation piece a little bit, because I, I think it's very key. Um, do we know how to do this, Mark? Like right now, we, I think we have the technology, right? So I think we have the control systems. We know the lower Kelvin temperatures. We can shield lighting. We can dim lighting. We, get, we can do all these wonderful things. Um, and we can make all these amazing light fixtures, which will preserve our night skies and keep our streets safe and do all this stuff. But do we know how to write these regulations? Do we know as an industry and as, a, as architects and designers and all that, do we, can we get together? And do we know what to do and can we do it? That's, that's the follow-up question to that, Mark. Yeah, it's very, it's very tricky. I mean, we recently, uh, I can't talk in too much detail about it because um, it's still sort of, still sort of a, a live project, but we recently have been asked by uh, an area, a local government in the UK to uh, help them develop a set of standards um, for the control of uh, light within their urban area. Um, you know, to try and sort of reduce light spill from office buildings, to sort of mm. put limits in terms of sort of private lighting and sort of the un unregulated and uncontrolled level of private lighting that sometimes can be a blight or and signage and advertising and all of those mm -hmm. issues. So, you know, it's a very progressive study. And we've, you know, when, uh, I know from our experience of working on that, when we get down to the nitty gritty in terms of talking to those people that are sort of, you know, we're working with who are in local government, they're saying, well, you know, it's, we, we get the fact that you guys can write guidance, uh, you know, very responsible guidance that you hope everybody will follow, but we have to enforce this guidance. If you mm -hmm. see what I mean, we have to sort mm -hmm. of make sure that people follow it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what happens, it's great if everybody sort of follows the guidance and, you know, in a very democratic way, but what if we get, you know, a bad apple that decides, well, to hell with the guidance, I'm going to do this. You know, mm -hmm. how do we then enforce or regulate that? And that's a really tricky question because mm -hmm. it then raises the issue of we're back to numbers. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> they, want, they want something to measure. Uh, and uh, it's sort of so it's a very it's a very live issue you're mentioning in terms of, you know, um, uh, but I think, you know, uh, as to how to do this. And uh, um, I wish I had a sort of unique answer to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, so in that particular case, what we've been doing is trying to sort of um, consult on and gradually develop a simple set of guidelines, but with as limited a numerical framework as we can to try and make it easy for to sort of hit hit the big issues, you know, such as, you know, say monumental light spill from buildings or, you know, the visual brightness of, uh, of, of major signage or whatever. Um, but otherwise rely on people sort of following guidance as being sort of best practice and, you know, sort of trying to sort of encourage people to do the right thing. So I think, you know, you're right, the regulation is, is, is a very difficult word. And I would love to feel that we could just write guidance and everybody would follow it. A, a little bit like, you know, dark skies, the, you know, the dark skies people, you know, come up with ordinance and, you know, that ordinance mm -hmm. is, is modeling ordinance, yeah. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not law, um, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it's sort of implied that if, you know, you want to be a dark skies community, kind of need to follow this mm -hmm. and that strikes me as a sort of you know a very positive way forward as opposed to being a legal framework but as soon as you're dealing with issues such as safety particularly road traffic and accidents mm -hmm. and things like that and unfortunately we live in a society where people want sort of you know what they see as sort of hard and fast rules that they can say yes this complies and no it doesn't and it's, it's tricky stuff because light is such a tricky medium to talk about and sort of um, for people to understand so I don't I don't have an immediate answer to that. I think I think what I do have an answer is that it's people like us and I'm not saying, you know, just us, you know, we at Spears Major or whatever, but I think, you know, experienced lighting designers who've worked in the urban environment for many years definitely, definitely are the right people for government to talk to, whether it's local government or central government to talk to, in order to ask advice, you know. Mm -hmm. Um I, I sometimes see things a lot said about lighting by all sorts of people 
Um, and I think, well, you know, what's your frame of reference? You know, where's your experience? You know, mm. I think sometimes, you know, a lot of people think the lighting is terribly easy. Um, and, I think it's uh, both. Know. I think it's both. You know, I mean, you know, from the distributor end of it. So when I leave here, I go out and sell people light bulbs and light fixtures and we do projects. And I actually do a lot of churches, not not St. Paul's Cathedral, certainly. I mean, but we do <laughs> lots of sanctuaries and, and yeah. uh, you know, these kinds of things. We help people with their lighting problems. So I think it's both easy. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, uh, you know, gets you into the Copernican versus Democritean dilemma. You go from the tiniest thing in the world to the universe, you know, they're both and everything in between. Uh, but one of the things that our trade association, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors that presents this show, we came up with six strategies for uh, darkness restoration and preservation. And, and the first one was industry alignment. And when the, when the committee came out with that, and they're, they're like, most people in the lighting industry have, are not interested in, in darkness preservation at all. They're not interested in it at all. They have, they have no stake in that game. They, they, uh, they see it as a threat. In fact, it's, it's actually a negative conversation because, you know, people think you're going to sell less lights. And we're trying to convince them that, you know, listen, if, you, if we all get on board with this, we just put almost every light fixture that's outside back into the, the, the play here. To, you know, it's available to be changed again and improved. And it's a good value prep, um, thing. How do we – so the regulatory piece is going to come from hopefully industry practitioners like yourself and, and others, maybe through industry groups like um, – Society of Light and Lighting or, you know, IES or these different organizations. But how do we get the industry to align to this issue? It's very difficult. There's a lot of resistance. Yeah, no, I, 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 I understand exactly what you're saying. I think it's a matter of trust. Um, and, uh, and you're completely correct. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's just to do with the fact that it's sort of about, you know, the opportunity to sell everything all over again. I think that sort of is something that, the lighting industry has been very good at over the years of sort of you know, inventing <laughs> new technologies and sort of you know sort of you know building in redundancy in a sense into uh, both technology and uh, approaches uh, you know so it guarantees a replacement further down the line. Um, I, I also think it's about you know quite, quite often uh, a, a, a lot of lighting that we're involved in tends to deal with a larger number of smaller things as opposed to a small small number of large things you know you made the analogy of the prison yard at the beginning of this conversation mm -hmm. you know it's about one big floodlight you know producing as <laughs> massive amount of light from one position as you can mm -hmm. often in the name of efficiency um and whereas actually quite often good lighting design involves and it's, it's something that our clients observe you know there seem to be an awful lot of lights and what we say is, yeah, but they're, they're, they're a lot more controlled. You know, you, 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 can, you can light a room, you know, you can light your living area with one lamp in the middle of the ceiling, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't feel very good. And, you know, mm -hmm. it probably isn't very adequate. Equally, you can go out and buy half a dozen table lamps and light your room in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you've now got half a dozen things as opposed to one thing in the middle of the room, but it's better. Mm -hmm. um, or it should be better as a result. And I think the opportunity for the, uh, the lighting industry and distributors is very much uh, in terms of the, the, the larger number of smaller things as, mu as much as it is in sort of replacing what, what's already there. Um, because, you know, it, it's for definite. If you, you know, let's say you want to light a path mm -hmm. through a sensitive area it's, and we have to light it to a certain level, to a certain degree of uniformity, then, it, you know, the result you're going to end up with is low-level path lights or, you know, maybe even bollards, if you see what I mean, something mm -hmm, below sure. eye level that's sort yep. of more controlled, where mm -hmm. you're going to end up with five, six, seven times more of those um, than you are if you have something on a column, at, you know, regular, you know, wide regular spacings. Um, and that's just, to me, um, good lighting often involves a sort of a, a finer level, a finer grain of detail and a finer grain of delivery. So, you know, but but I don't think at the end of the day how you know how light how lighting gets sold is necessarily should be the centre of the conversation. I think it's to do with a sort of partnership, an ongoing partnership which has been there for decades between those that design with light and those mm -hmm. that manufacture and supply light. Mm -hmm. um, you know, traditionally there's always been a little bit of division between those groups, and I think it started. Certainly in my day when I started into lighting design, that division existed because manufacturers provided free lighting design services 
in order from our perception to sell as many light fittings as possible mm -hmm. you know um and the reason that clients decided to pay people like us fees to design lighting was that they would get an independent view that was not sort of just coming from one manufacturer who wanted to you know sell as many lights as possible and get people to buy as many boxes from them as they could but we would take an independent view on what was the best way to illuminate a space now to me that didn't necessarily lead to less light fixtures you know delivering the solution but it would lead to sort of maybe a different attitudes in terms of um developing the brief you know beginning to state um, ways in which uh, to sort of uh, do things and sort of talking about sort of aesthetics and an approach in an entirely different way and besides you know free lunches often aren't always you know what they're cracked up to be so you know quite often you know if you if you get a free service there's always there's always a catch um there's no such thing as a, as, as a free lunch really um so i think so when i say working in partnership what i mean is i think that we can we can help uh, lighting designers like us can help you know signal the way to you know to future trends and sort of help manufacturers see the way the you know, the direction of travel that lighting is going to go in similarly i think we need to increasingly use products that you know are um, you know are delivered as a result of circular design um, can be fully recycled and upgraded um, if necessarily com you know elements composted or if they have to be wasted then wasted in a responsible way and we've seen certainly just in the last year or two here in the uk and europe as um, regulation around circularity and around sort of the responsible disposal of lighting technologies has begun to sort of, you know, take center stage. You know, this is a big issue for us here in the UK and it is in the rest of the world, but, you know, it's a sort mm -hmm. of very live sure. moment. Um, you know, SLL and SIBSI, the organization they're part of, have introduced new, new guidance and standards around this topic very recently. And we're all mm -hmm. sort of educating ourselves and what we found is that that's led us into really interesting conversations with manufacturers about how they're going to deliver that because it's all very well you know talking about circularity and talking about sort of all of these issues but the people that make the light fittings and distribute and sell the light fittings have to be compliant and you know there's a rapid change taking place in the industry of move towards compliance around issues of of you know disposal and recycling and sort of the the embodied energy that goes into fixtures we all want to know a lot more about this stuff and we found that that's led us into really interesting and very positive conversations with manufacturers about how we can help them but also how they can help us deliver more responsible schemes so i think it's just a change of perception it's a change of language it's a change of attitude and it's just sort of thinking about the future in a different way so it's interesting i actually own a company called waste diversion and um ah. so we recycle um millions of um fluorescent tubes and mercury containing lamps and also light fixtures yeah. and all this kind of stuff and i find that these conversations are absent the kind of expertise that i have so when when people um talk about you reusing light fittings a lot of times when i listen to them i i know that they've never removed a fixture from a ceiling in their entire career like they or let alone 1281 or whatever yeah. it is, right? And, you know, so I, I see when they talk about circularity, like I want to know exactly what it is you're talking about because I can respond to that here with solutions for clients. Um, but, you know, we we know how to recycle fluorescent tubes. We know how to recycle uh, HID, HPS, metal halide, low-pressure sodium, all these types of things. I know how to recycle existing fluorescent light fixtures and HID light fixtures. Yes, they all become raw materials again. They get melted down back into metals. Okay, but the way they were built, 99% of those fixtures are 100% recyclable back into the metals that they were. Yeah. This is not the case for LED lighting. LED lighting is basically e-waste. And, yeah. um, you know, we don't really have good streams in, in North America, at least, for these types of waste. The second thing with, with the LEDs is that they're all, like, all of the innovation is, a lot of the innovation is wasted on mechanical form factors that are differing between various manufacturers. So if I receive back, a, a, you know, 10 skids of old LED lights, 
we have no idea what we're going to receive, how much metal is in it, how much plastic, you know, what, what's coming out of that and all sorts of stuff. With fluorescent fixtures, it didn't matter who manufactured it, when it was manufactured or anything else. If somebody says they're going to send us 165 two by four for fluorescent choppers to recycle, I know exactly what I'm going to get and exactly what I'm going to get into. And so I think this industry in the move to LED has missed the opportunity to standardized mechanical form factors which is a waste of innovation if everybody has to everybody's making a different size screw socket piece all this kind of stuff it's a waste of time and if you look at um, this is a bit of a rant but i'm gonna i'm gonna culminate with this (laughs) go for it (laughs) if you if you if you look at the innovation in led lighting okay where the most amazing innovations have happened it's within the existing lamp form factors. And people say, well, that's boring, Colligan. But you know what? We went from a 26-watt, 4-foot LED T8, and now we're at 10 watts. And that's in yeah. six or seven years. And people, you know, why is that? Because all the innovation is being spent not creating a different form factor, not making a different shape. It's being spent on the LED efficiency, the quality, the reliability, the controllability, the tuning, the dimming. It's all being put into the mechanical form factor that is set. The socket, the fixture, needs, the bulb needs to be this long. It needs to have this yep. socket. It needs to work on this voltage and go in this type of fixture. All of that is taken off the table for the designers, and all they have to do is work in that space and improve that. And that then becomes a replaceable field repairable component uh-huh. that any manufacturer can sell into. And so I, I feel like the industry has, I know Jaga has done a lot of work on this, um, but I feel like if we're going to continue to make purpose-built LED light fixtures, we have to, as an industry worldwide, standardize the mechanical form factors in some way that other people can sell into that specific unit. So waste... Uh-huh people know what they're getting back and how it gets dismantled. And if we don't set those mechanical form factors, you're basically making piles and piles of e-waste, Mark. And I I know that was a long rant, but that's what's coming. And that's not environmentally friendly. That goes against the principles of sustainability. Yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And it's crazy in a sense that we haven't learned from history about, you know, the early days of sort of... Mm. Many, many of the, you know, whether it's cars or washing machines or any, you know, this applies to so many mm-hmm. areas of, uh, of technology, you know, where a deliberate redundancy was built in and also, you know, sort of uniqueness of parts and mm-hmm. tools and everything has been seen as a sort of providing a competitive advantage between um, different manufacturers in order to earn more profit rather than taking the long view in terms of the, you know the utility of things and the repairability of things and the standardization of things to make it you know eventually i think i can't remember uh you know how long it took in in, in the us or uh, or in uh, and in canada to get standardization of things like nuts and bolts and their sizes sure. yes but i think that took about you know 20 30 years or, sure. or longer you know on something as simple as just you know mechanical fixings and so mm-hmm. it doesn't come as a surprise that we found ourselves in this sort of situation with leds but you're right it's it's disappointing that we didn't learn from history and see this coming from a long way off we've been talking about this as design you know we we have you know very unhappy clients where we know we're um, specifying something we have to sort of put caveats in you know in specifications saying well you know of course you know if you come back to replace this unit in five years time because it's a failure you know we we cannot absolutely guarantee <laughs> yep. you, you know you're not going to have repaired. a problem you know yeah yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and that it, is a failure. That is a failure in the lighting industry. It, yeah, it's 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 almost it's it was almost built into it because, you know, if you look at the lighting industry, say, when I started in the late 90s, um, you're talking about an industry that had huge capital investments in making um, these replacement components and selling them into existing in- infrastructure that was out yeah. there in the field. Right, whether that be MR16s or light bulbs or screw in this, so the the, the capital infrastructure was dedicated to the replacement parts, right? Yeah. That's everything was built. The, the all these fixture manufacturers, here's your ballasts, here's your sockets, go make these light fixtures, and then the big players, GE Phillips and Sylvania, they were dedicated to making the replacement parts, not the actual light fixtures. Like that, like that's yeah. a major. 
major sort of mindset change. Now all the major players have abandoned replacement parts. They're not interested in selling into the critical infrastructure that exists. They're interested in replacing the critical infrastructure that exists. And they're also invested in making sure that that needs to be replaced over and over and over again on a lower and a faster life cycle. So instead of a 40-year light fixture, you want a five-year light fixture, a 10-year light fixture. But I think we're going to betray our consumers with this. We're going to betray the end users that don't want to replace their light fixtures every five years. I don't think it's it's healthy for us. You're you're preaching to the converted. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you something about light pollution because – and I I wrote this down and we kind of got off on a tangent. I'm I'm really enjoying talking to you, Mark. There's a a lot of places I think we can go and kind of unpack things. But from the light pollution piece, when you were talking about, you know, local authorities and and inspectors and, you know – what do we call them? Bylaw officers in, in Ontario, they're called. This is who would, it wouldn't be the police you call if somebody has a light trespass issue, right? You're going to call That's the bylaw. Yeah. You're going to call the, the bylaw officer. He's going to, you know, how, how he wants to come by with a light meter or something. Like, how do I write this ticket or whatever for this person? And I, But I think the, the I, I, I had this idea that, you know, we really don't care that much about light trespass here and there. So what if, you know, in terms of the movement of darkness restoration or dark skies, like light trespasses a neighborly issue or a city issue in a particular area and into a community and something like that. But I think we could figure out the light trespass. I don't know how we figure out the sky glow issue. Like how do we measure sky glow? Do we have any metrics for that? Like the, you, you start to explore this dark sky movement and you find out that actually I'm not even sure we know how to measure light pollution correctly. Now astronomers say they can do it. Um, some of the lighting guys, more of the light pollution guys are saying there is no metric. I'm getting different answers from people. But can, do we have ways, Do you, have you encountered any ways of measuring the impact of a lighting system on darkness? Is there any any of these numbers areas or is it still, is it going to remain an art that you know a good lighting, you know a dark sky system when you see it? You know what, I know one when I see it, you know, but is it like an art, you know, that it's never going to be able to get out of that? Yeah, I'm not aware and we haven't got involved in strict measurement of uh, light pollution criteria. I mean, you know, obviously you, you, on, on individual buildings, you can within reason measure light trespass and light spill from the building, you know, through computer mm-hmm. modeling. I mean, that's not, that's been around for a long time. But when we talk about sky glow, uh, you know, theoretically, you could sort of, you know, take a, you know, take a, take a building or take a roadway lighting scheme. And I guess you can model it and actually sort of put a measuring plane in to sort of see how much light is traveling upwards. But then what are you comparing that to? What was someone asking, you know, so that no one's putting strict, strict measurements on it. So therefore what it's down to is that coming back to, you know, as you say, best practice and sort of, you know, knowing the difference between a good way of doing things and a bad way of doing things. And I think in the short to medium term, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be the way forwards um, that, uh, you know, it's sort of um, understanding that, you know, and I think it's tricky. You know, one of the conundrums we often face as lighting designers um, is the lighting of vertical surfaces at night. I mentioned earlier that, you know, one way of making a more legible environment is to illuminate vertical surfaces so that you mm-hmm. understand the space that you're in rather than it's just all light on the horizontal. Um, but quite often you find that many of those vertical features at night in, uh, in, in open landscape or in urban situations uh, quite often don't have a ceiling or a means by which to downlight them. You know, you end up putting, you know, like as a wall with a bunch of uplighters, you know, sort of focused on the wall, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. you know, it's still upward, it's still bouncing, you know, <laughs> reflected sure. component is going up and up into the sky. Mm-hmm. And whilst architectural lighting per se is not probably, you know, guilty of being the sort of uh, the worst contributor to uh, light pollution, I guess, it, I guess it all adds up. You know, we know that highway lighting and sports stadium lighting and uncontrolled signage lighting, you know, there's a lot of other big offenders uh, in the, you know, if you drew a pie chart of, you know, what causes light pollution, architectural lighting would be a very small slither mm-hmm. on that uh, pie chart compared to many other forms of uh, in- more industrialized lighting. Um, but, uh, but, but, but nonetheless, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There isn't a sort of great way of uh, measuring and determining and dictating this other than sort of asking, you know, asking people to sort of, you know, follow, follow best practice. I mean, you see that in Dark Skies Ordinance in a sense. It's a sort of series, it's a series of sort of guidelines to follow in mm. order to sort of, you know, if everybody did that, we'd have Dark Skies. Exactly. Kind, yeah. kind yes. of. But, yes. But, but, but there's no way. We're not sure what would happen, but things would be sure, a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Precisely, it's, it yeah, comes yeah. from that sort of model. 
So I don't see an immediate uh, an immediate change um, uh, change to that. But I think part of the part of the story for us um, is it, it, it's to do with education and it's to do with a change in attitude and it's to, to do with trying to um, talk to people, and particularly the public, uh, the wider public. Um, and uh, politicians and people that you know, decision makers and people that sort of control the control the environment, and try and persuade them that darkness is not always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I remember years ago when we were working in the city of Durham, we were commissioned and we won, you know, won the tender to produce a lighting strategy for Durham. It's a historic city in the north of England, as I'm sure you're aware. Originally, a sort of mining city, but there's a beautiful mm -hmm. cathedral and a beautiful castle. It's very picturesque, and actually, you know, surprisingly dark it's sort of um it's a sort of you know quite a a low little when we, we we were there it was certainly had fairly low lighting levels and even sort of a whole network of medieval alleys called venels that were totally unlit which was you know pretty surprising to find in the uh, in the 21st century mm -hmm. we decided to call our strategy a light and darkness strategy right from mm -hmm. the outset and to begin with that was seen as a little bit controversial by the commissioning client mm -hmm. and the local city council say well, well, well hang on a second we, we we want a lighting strategy and said no 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 part of the value of your city Look how beautiful it is at night, you know, that it's not mm. sort of, you know, you don't have lots of issues with light pollution, you know, you don't, you're not overlit yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually, you know, so your strategy should be to sort of preserve and conserve what you have as much as to improve and to add to it. So if you want to, you know, we're the wrong people, if you want a lighting strategy to light this all up and sort of get rid of the current character, what you want to do is to sort of get the balance right between improving the areas that need improving, but restoring and then restoring and then retaining uh, the areas of darkness um, that uh, that you already have, and uh, and that was seen as a pretty groundbreaking strategy when we first released that. I'm trying to remember precisely when it was. I, I can get you the data for um, if, if you need it, um, but uh, it was certainly a, certainly a few years ago, 2007. I'm taking a guess. But Ooh, that's a, yeah, that's actually quite a while ago yeah. for that. Wow. I was going to say, I, I was, yeah, that's actually, uh, they, it's interesting because the trade association that, um, that, that presents this sh show is, is considering becoming funding research. And we're, we're looking at one project right now that's more to do with color rendering. But um, another, we're, we're looking at some of these um, uh, darkness issues out there. And one of the things that they, they want to name the, the foundation is the Lighting and Darkness Research Foundation. And so that it's not, it's both together, you know, lighting and darkness yeah, research, you know, and so that, that the darkness component of it is at the forefront. Um, we've almost coming up on an hour here. I can't believe it, Mark. It's been. Wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? Wow. Yeah, okay. That's, it's really flown. It's, it's flown by. Yeah. yeah. One of the, one of the things that I think drives the Restoring Darkness podcast from, from, from my perspective is, is actually, I have no idea how to solve this problem. I'm very interested in it. And so when I when I have the honor of speaking to people like you and, and many of our other great guests on Restoring Darkness who, you know, have a lot of knowledge, they're professors, PhDs, you know, designers of major, major architecture in the world, and I talk to them, I think that the industry needs to express some humility, like as a whole, and maybe and come out and say, you know, we need to change some things because we're not doing things the right way right now. Instead of this posturing of like, we're going to twist a little bit towards darkness restoration. We're going to twist a little bit, but we did everything right. Everything was okay in the past, but we're just, we're going to so slowly, you know, turn towards this over the next 25 years. I think if we just came out and said, you know, hey, I think we've made some mistakes with our LED lighting upgrades and it wasn't all improvement over HPS. We've lost something with the low Kelvin temperature of HPS and, and we want to return to that. And so we've made some mistakes and, and we want to fix those mistakes. And I think that, that, that kind of dialogue invites regulators. It invites people to the table to sit down and, and to do things. And the posturing and the, uh, the inability to say that we, you know, nothing went wrong in the past and we didn't do anything that was uh, an error and you know, heads in the sand, heads in the sand. I think that's causing problems. And I think if we just said, guys, nobody's, it's not anybody's exact fault personally okay but but as an industry we can fix this problem everybody's yeah. going to make a lot of money and we're going to make lots of light fixtures and there's going to be lots of light fixtures to sell and work to do for everybody in fact there's going to be new careers 
for lighting controls integrators and people that are going to have wonderful jobs you know, installing and yeah, commissioning absolutely. this stuff. I wish we could get a sense of hope around this movement and, and joy rather than sort of, you know, oh, okay, darkness restoration. I see it. Okay, I'm going to quickly talk about it and move back. There's like a kind of, um, we're, fr we're afraid to, to dive into the deep end here, but I think that's our future, yeah. Mark. I, I agree with that sentiment entirely. You know, you've expressed it so well. And I, and I have to say, if there's any one incentive for people to get together and do it that way, is that will be a point maybe in the future. I'm not encouraging this, but I'm just saying that we'll, there may be a point that, as with other industries, there will come a point when polluter pays. And if the, yeah. lighting, industry get, if the lighting industry gets into that territory of polluter pays, it's going to be a whole different world. You know, I think at some point I wrote an article uh, uh, where we were sort of talking about uh, light in the future in 2050 and how it might be in cities and sort of, you know, with the advent of changes in, you know, leaning towards pedestrianization, less cars. So maybe, you know, street lighting needing to change in response more to pedestrian movement than car movement, you know, the, the whole upending of the way in which we light cities and why we light them. And I raised the, I, I wrote a sort of theoretical piece about this sort of, you know, kind of city of the future and how it might play out. Mm. And one of the things I introduced was the idea of taxation on uh, taxation on issues of light spill and light pollution. And mm. somebody who read that said, I can't believe you let that genie out of the bottle. I said, come on, it's really obvious that at some point someone's going to find a way, you know, at governmental level to sort of m monetize this if we, all, if we all don't sort of get it, get it, get our act together and uh, work away. Now, at the moment, as you say, measuring that or deciding who's the polluter and how that how they're the mm -hmm. polluter is not fortunately going to go down that line. But they, you know, with regulatory frameworks, if they do come in very quickly, in my experience, you know, money follows. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're seeing that in Europe with the mercury light ban, right? You're seeing that right yeah. now. You know, it's interesting. I, I was on. My, I do another podcast called Get a Grip on Lighting, and we were having a conversation on that show. And I and you know the 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 guest was talking about regulation, 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 and I said, well, I expressed some disappointment. Like, why is innovation following regulation? And he said, what, what are you talking about? He goes, we've already invented all this technology. Someone just needs to tell us what to do with it, in a way. And I think in that you need the like we have the technology, and now the governments are saying, well, use it to do this. You know, and yeah. I, I think that's important. It's an important piece and it's a nuanced discussion. It's not right versus left. It's just like, this is important. Sometimes you need a carrot. Sometimes you need a stick. Sometimes you need to knock heads together. And I think regulation sometimes forces the right regulations, you know, um, with enforcement, which is another issue. Regulation without enforcement is punishing of the compliant, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so it's... You know, you have to be able to enforce these regulations. And if we get too complicated, but this idea of, it's interesting that um, you mentioned that that's a really creative idea to tax light output rather than, and energy use. And I, I actually, I, I'm not a big fan of taxes. I'll be honest with you. I don't like income none taxes. Of us, none of us are. <laughs> I, don't like, I, I don't like income taxes. I don't like property taxes. I love consumption taxes. I think consumption taxes of, of, of different things are very progressive in the, you know, if you want to buy a Ferrari, you got to pay 13% on the cost of the car, buddy. That's our, how it works. And we could probably create, but this idea of creating, um, finding a way to monetize the use of light in a way that, forces people to think about how much it costs. Imagine if you made, if electricity was free, how many, how many, how much people would use of it. Now, obviously we want to make it accessible. We want to make it affordable, but if you don't charge for something, like you said earlier, it has no value by definition, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So in a sense, requiring people to sort of, you know, value it or place, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if it hurts in the pocket, then people will start to think of more creative and innovative ways in which to sort of deliver what is needed, but in what ultimately will be, become a more sustainable manner. Um, so I think there are a lot of, you know, we, we've seen already in here in the UK with the cost of, you know, the, the massive spiraling cost of electricity, a lot more discussion about lighting in the last few months than I've heard mm -hmm. in years on, the, on public radio broadcast, you know, about sort of people turning their lights off and, you know, and 
uh, and I keep, uh, you know, uh, I, I listened to the radio the other day and there was some, you know, poor old lady saying, you know, well, you know, I'm really afraid of turning my lights off. And I just wanted the, the broadcaster to say, you don't need to turn them off. You just need a means to turn them down. Mm. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, it's, it's not as, it's not as sort of black and white as saying, you know, on or off. But of mm. course, you know, she doesn't have the, I'm sure she doesn't have a dimmer on her lights and, you know, so, because, you know, she could save electricity by turning her lights down sure. um, throughout her house. But she, you know, she, she was making the, you know, the binary choice between I can either have my lights on and, and pay a lot in electricity or I can have my lights. And people here are getting, you know, pretty, at, at the, you know, at the sort of uh, the, the poorer end of the social and income uh, and income scale. Mm -hmm. but really, you know, making Buffering. choices about, you know, re reducing the number of times they boil a kettle a day because yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're really down right at the kind of the edge of survival in terms of being able to pay these electricity bills that are spiraled massively out of control. I mean, yeah. It's crazy at the moment. It's the same in Canada. So. Uh, Canada is a very, um, is a very wealthy nation um, by comparison. I mean, Canada is bigger than all of Europe. You can fit you know, France and Germany into Ontario. You can fit France, Germany, and Spain into Quebec. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we're talking massive resources. Ontario, where I live, and Quebec are probably the two cleanest electricity jurisdictions in the world. I mean, I don't know that for sure, wow. but Ontario is about sixty percent nuclear and twenty thirty percent hydro, something like that. Uh -huh. So it's dams and nuclear reactors, and then Quebec is basically all hydroelectricity. So yeah. we have a lot of energy in Ontario. Um, I think we're not screaming it from the rooftops. I mean, but um, we probably should. Uh, because, you know, we basically our, our, our electricity grids in Ontario, Quebec are m way ahead of everyone else's anyway, 80% carbon free or whatever, however that metric is. But you know what? I want the politicians to stop, you know, and the broadcasters stop picking on the lighting industry. Um, we've done a lot, actually. I'm going to raise my hand. I, I don't know how, how it is in the UK, okay, but in Ontario, we've changed a lot of lights and we've done it twice, okay? We went from T12 to T8. And then we went from yeah. T8 to LED or T5 to LED. And, we, you know, we went from incandescent to CFL. And then we went from CFL to LED. And you know what? Our industry has provided all the energy savings in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Okay? It's time for the HVAC guys to step up. It's time for <laughs> some, you know what I mean? Pick on those guys. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It seems like everybody turns out, well, we need to save energy. Where are the lighting guys? You know, it's like, can we have a little bit of room here to, to, to you know, look at other areas of light other than just energy efficiency? Yeah, I was, I was giving a talk yesterday and uh, I said, you know, obviously a lot of people talk uh, about sort of, you know, the problems of light and light pollution. But if we could see all the cooling and the heating escaping from buildings, mm. if we could see that, mm -hmm. um, there'd be a lot bigger conversation about that whole issue. Um, but, you know, uh, it's um, you know light as a very visible form of energy use mm -hmm. is obviously you know right there you know, right there out in the open for people to uh, people to witness. So I don't disagree with you. Don't disagree with you at all about the HVAC guys. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this: get, get yourself. I bet you there's an infrared app. App. I mean, 20 years ago you'd have to buy a seven thousand dollar camera, but today there's probably an infrared app on your iPhone. You could probably point it at a building and watch the yeah. the cooling escaping in the summer and the heat heat escaping Absolutely. from different windows that aren't sealed properly or or what have you. It's you know, so yeah, pick we on those guys. We a should little encourage bit. that. Yeah, we should encourage that. <laughs> <laughs> Go pick on the HVAC guys for a while. <laughs> hey, uh, Mark, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Right. No, I've enjoyed it too, and time has really, uh, time has really flown. And so, uh, thank you very much for asking me to be part of your podcast, and uh, it's been a very, very enjoyable time. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. Hey, is there any final thoughts you have for the Restoring Darkness listeners, just to, to put a nightcap on it? Well, you mentioned the, uh, the, you know, the Roland acronym earlier. This sort of um, move towards responsible, responsible outdoor lighting at night, and I really liked that term when I first heard it. Mm -hmm. because, you Me know, too. I, I think sustainability is a sort of difficult word. You know, it's, it's become quite devalued mm -hmm. uh, over the last sort of uh, 30, 30 years since it's been in thirty plus years since it's been in use, and I think applying the um, uh, the more sort of current terms of sort of what regenerative design means to the lighting industry is mm. kind of tricky. We're, we're still getting our heads around some of those, some of those words and some of the sort of tenants around sort of, you know, making sort of positive contributions, if you see what I mean, rather than always talking about how we can, you know, do, do, do things in the sort of, you know, in, in better ways that we can, we, 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 we sort of, 
we're beginning to talk about sort of making more sort of positive contributions um, to you know everything from local and to me making a positive contribution is sometimes about taking things away like you know light restoring darkness is a, is a, mm -hmm. is a sort of you could say is, is would be deemed to be a negative act but we need to see it as a positive act mm -hmm. um but i think that um this this word responsibility is the best word to use you know so you know my my my, my parting shot would be to say you know if we if we can all just sort of take this more responsible approach more balanced approach to lighting design mm. i think that's the first stepping stone towards a much better future and uh, so you know that's certainly what we're doing in our practice and just to finish off here folks i'm going to change to life rather than just lighting because <laughs> uh i think we could all do a better job being more responsible um and i think maybe that would be a interesting word for the 21st century and i thank mark for coming on the show mark major um, all of his social media, he's got Instagram, a LinkedIn, and a Twitter account. It's going to be posted on the RestoringDarkness.com website. And thank you, listeners, for making it to the end with us. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky-friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.